0: You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Could you imagine a life with no fear? So I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, there are hundreds of fears that the psychological world has kind of come up with to name all kinds of things. So if you were at the men's retreat, some of these might be familiar to you, so no cheating, help us out here, all right? But let's just see real quick how good you are. Go ahead and share with the person next to you if you know the answer, ready? What is arachnophobia? It's the fear of? All right, you knew that one. That one was easy. All right, here we go. It's gonna get harder as we go. Claustrophobia, it's the fear of? Right, right, tight spaces, or you know, exactly how you say that. This one, you may not know, but it's not hard to figure out. It's not too hard to figure out. So aquaphobia, the fear of? Yeah, specifically the fear of drowning, which tends to happen probably more in water than, say, Coca-Cola. So, okay, Um, this one would definitely fit me, but the name itself might give it away. Arithmophobia, fear of math, right? Not everybody got that one, but now you have it. So how about this one? Phobophobia. The fear of fears. <laughs> Just in case you would not know what your fears were. Are you afraid of fear? I am. I'm terrified of it. I don't know what's going to happen. But here's two that are a little bit harder. This is where I need the men's group to help me out here. Don't, don't share, or the men's retreat, if you were there and you remember. Let's see if you can guess this one. Don't yell it out, all right? Just kind of look at the person next to you and whisper it, if you know the answer. And then I'll say to see if anybody knows the answer. Ready? I'm probably not even saying this right. Omphalophobia. No Googling. Omphalophobia. Now, did anybody get it? Let's hear. Anybody? Yell it out. No, not fear of failing. Anybody else? It's a body part. Adam or Eve may or may not have had one. That help anybody? (laughs) Belly buttons. You ever think about that with Adam and Eve? They have a belly button. All right. Fear of belly buttons. In fact. People with now I just blew your mind, now you're not listening to anything I said. Anyway, people with the fear of belly buttons try to avoid touching their own, even in the bath. They might cover their belly buttons with a bandage or avoid going places to where where navels are fully exposed, like the beach. There you go. But how about this one? All right, ready? Don't, Don't yell it out, don't yell it out. No googling, all right? Kind mortophobia. Kind mortophobia. Go ahead and take a guess to the person next to you and then we'll all guess together. Any daring person want to take a guess out loud? Kind Mortophobia, just say it. Nobody has a clue, do you? I'll give you a clue, you ready? Here we go. It'll kill you if you get it. Nope, didn't help. How about this one? Uh, it's a no-brainer. Fear of brains, fear of death, no. You're getting close, but no. Last clue, last clue. You might as well be walking dead if you have it. Zombies. Fear of zombies. Do you get it? It's a no-brainer. No. no? Now see? Now you got it. <clears throat> Could you imagine a life with no fear? Could you imagine literally going through life and having no anxiety, no fear whatsoever? There's a great article, uh, I do not recommend everything in it, but there's a great article if you just Google it later, it's in Parent Magazine, and uh, it was about the, the top 10 fears of children and how to help your children work through it. And again, I don't agree with everything, uh, Dr. Uh, Ayelet Tommy. I don't know how you say your name, uh, I don't agree with everything she says, but she does a pretty good job. Now, the top three fears for a child may not surprise you. Number one is the fear of the dark. She says, what a child is thinking when they're afraid of the dark is, I can't see what's out there, and so I feel unprotected in the dark. And her suggestion is a creative one, but her suggestion is that basically you allow them to determine how much light they need at night, and so that they get to fall asleep, and then slowly just kind of reduce that amount of light over time until they are basically just used to it. Um, She literally says, allow your children to control the amount of light. The second most common fear is the fear of, anybody want to guess? Monsters. They're everywhere, hiding in the trees. It's from Thomas. Anyway, what he's thinking, she says, is anything could be lurking under my bed and waiting to hurt me. This is my youngest son. So for a long time, he had a hard time going to sleep, so I would lay on the floor while he fell asleep, and I'd usually respond to emails and things like that while laying on his floor. And then I'm like, he's five, it's time to get over this, so then I moved into the hallway. And even like last night, he comes out of the room five minutes after I've been sitting in the hallway, and he's like, uh, hi. And I was like... Why are you out of bed? He's like, I was going to go tell mom something. I was like, Really? What were you going to go tell her? He's like, uh, I was afraid of something. I'm like, what were you afraid of? Half the time he's making this up to get out of bed, right? He's like, I was afraid there were skeletons under my bed and they were going to come out and get me. I'm like, Oh, really? What were they going to do to you? Uh, I not know, know. You're trying to rationalize with a five year old, right? So what her suggestion is, is you come up with like a spray gun that's like a monster spray gun, and like you literally go in and hunt for monsters, and then you give them the spray gun and say, here. But at the end of the day, they're going to feel in control because they've got the spray gun that they could shoot the monsters with this special monster spray. And then the third one is, anybody want to guess? Wow, that was good. Somebody read this article. Weather. Which, last night, my oldest one was like, Dad, I'll never be able to go to sleep tonight. He did. And I was like, really, why, buddy? He's like, the thunderstorms. Like, oh, I love the thunderstorms. I mean, it'll be bad. If there's ever a tornado, we're probably just gonna get sucked up because Dad will be sleeping right through it. Like, I just love him. But he's like, oh, no, not me. And her advice is, you should play outside in various conditions so that your child can feel what it's like when it's windy or rainy. And I'm thinking, she must not live in the Midwest. <laughs> like, <laughs> turns out she's in Colorado, but... The point in all of these is the same. When we're afraid, the way we deal with fear is what? We seek control, right? And the more control we feel, the safer we feel. And this starts when we're little kids, and it goes all the way through life. But here's a really hard question for you today. You ready? What happens when life is happening around you, and it's making you afraid, and it's out of your control, there's literally nothing you can do. There's no medical answer. There's no drug. There's no weapon. There's nothing you can do to make it go away. See, that's what today's passages are all about. If you have a Bible, you know how to use it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, or you don't know how to use the Bible you have, don't worry about it. I don't want you to spend all your time trying to find Luke 8. Just pay attention right here. We'll put all the verses for you today, and you can go back and look them up later and see if I got what I summarize accurate. In Luke 8, we see three different stories, three different events that affect four different people groups, and that's not bad math. In one story, there are two different stories kind of smashed in together, and we're going to take a look at all of them, which means i got to move today, because that's a lot of content to cover. But what we're going to see is in all of them, the driving factor, the driving force behind all of them is fear. And then the question, the big question becomes, what do we do in the midst of life's fears? Story number one. You'll see it in Luke chapter eight. Specifically, I think it starts around verse 22. Jesus gathers the disciples together, they get into a boat, and they go out onto the lake. Now if you don't know this, or maybe you missed the last few months, or whatever it is, no big deal, but many of Jesus' disciples are fishermen, at least four of them in particular, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are fishermen. There may be others as well, but at least the four of them are experts on the waters. Now, it's not uncommon in this part of the world for storms to kind of come up overnight, and they can sometimes be big storms. But if anybody at all has the training on what to do and how to do it, it would be these gentlemen. And so they're out on the boat in the middle of a lake, and a squall pops up, and it's a big deal. Now, Jesus is worn out. Ministry's been hard. If you remember, one night, he literally stayed up all night praying and talking to God, asking God who the 12 disciples should be, and so he's worn out. He's been serving people. You can ask my family. My wife calls it the two o'clock eye roll. Every Sunday afternoon, I go home. I'm like, baby, I'm feeling, every Sunday, baby, I'm feeling really good. Like, why don't you go take a nap? I got the kids. I got lunch. I'm a hero dad. And she said, I'll be mid-sentence, and it's right about 158, 201. like my eyes just glaze over the adrenaline has officially left my body and i'm just staring and she's like are you with us why don't you go lay down honorable i'm like okay every sunday and jesus has been at this now day after day after day he's preaching he's teaching he's pouring himself out he's healing others and he's tired so he's on the boat and he's taking a big old nap in the boat and the squall comes up and they are bailing water they are freaking out look at verse 24 The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, you've got to put yourself in their shoes to really get the weight of the story. These are experts on the water. If anybody knows how to deftly handle a disaster situation, these are the men. So how terrified are they if they believe they're going to die? How big a storm are we talking about? It's massive. It's scary. I can't prove this emphatically, so take all of this as my opinion and commentary, and I reserve the right to change my mind later down the road. But I don't think they're waking up Jesus for Jesus to perform a miracle. And the reason I don't is because later in the story, when Jesus does perform a miracle, it blew their mind. They never suspected or expected that he could do anything about the actual problem. Their expectation was they needed all hands on deck to bail water. Make sense? They desperately needed people trying to figure out how we're gonna get the boat to shore and water out of the boat while it's happening. And it's gonna take all of us and Jesus is busy taking a nap. And sometimes God feels like that, right? When disaster occurs, car accident, came out of nowhere, or whatever it might be, and you wonder to yourself, God, were you just taking a nap in that moment? There's seven billion people in the world roughly today. Experts believe we're probably headed towards 10 over the next 10 years or so. I mean, Jesus, he's busy, right? He's got lots of people to care for. Maybe he just slept on this one. Look at the rest of the verse, though. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and what? All was calm. I'm no expert on the waters. I enjoy oceans as much as anybody else. I don't have any aquaphobias. That's not my problem. But I know much about the water. I know this. We have a big bathtub in our house. It came with our house. And, um... It's so big that like, I can't take a bath in it without putting something at the end to put my feet up against because I'm five foot eight and it's built for somebody taller than five foot eight. And so it's big enough for me to put two or three little boys in, which is perfect because I have three little boys. And when they get in there and mommy's not home um, or downstairs and they get to splashing around and daddy is letting them, that water gets pretty crazy. And when they stop finally because dad realizes he's got some explaining to do, um, The water doesn't just go, does it? It takes time for the sloshing to slow down. Now, I realize a bathtub is not a lake. It's just a small version though, isn't it? But when Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, everything became immediately calm. Again, I can't say this emphatically, but I don't think Jesus walked up and did some Jedi mind trick on the wind and the waves. I don't think he just went up and went, you will be calm. He says he rebuked it. I think he used some force in his voice when he rebuked it. Be still! Maybe he yelled it loud enough for the disciples to hear. Max Cato, in his great book called Fearless, imagine your life without fear. He says this, fear corrodes our confidence in God's goodness. We begin to wonder if love lives in heaven. If God can sleep in our storms, if his eyes stay shut when our eyes grow wide, if he permits storms after we got on his boat, does he care? Fear unleashes a swarm of doubts, anger stirring doubts. Fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. Jesus turns after rebuking the waves, and he looks at his disciples, and in verse 25, he says, where is your faith? I used to, when I would read this story, I used to picture whatever voice Jesus used on the wind and the waves, he used on the disciples. So if he looked at the wind and the waves, it just went. Then he looked at the disciples, and he went. I don't think that's the case. Again, I can't prove this, take this as my opinion, but I think it means something. I think Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. I think he literally yelled at the wind and the waves, but I don't think he rebuked the disciples. I think he turned around and simply asked them a question when the noise was immediately gone, when everything was immediately calm, and he looked at them and he said, guys, where's your faith? And the disciples all look at each other. And it says, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Again, that's why I don't believe their initial question had to do with that. I believe their initial question had to do with, we need hands to help. Jesus, how can you sleep in a time like this? You know what this is like, right? Right? If you're married, or if you have a roommate, or if you've ever had one, you understand what this is like, right? You've got guests coming over the house, and the person that is supposed to be helping you get the house clean is sitting on the couch watching TV, and you're thinking to yourself, what is wrong with you? You're nuts. We are working our tail ends off trying to get everything ready, and the disciples are looking at Jesus saying, you are nuts. How can you sleep at a time like this? And Jesus says, because I wasn't worried about where the story was going. I knew who was in control of the story. Our lives were never in danger for one moment. But does that mean that our lives are never in danger for one moment? I don't think that's what we can extrapolate from this. How do I know? Well, at some point, Jesus dies. And so did all of the disciples. How do I know? Well, because they're not here anymore. Like, it'd be really easy to prove Christianity, right? Well, there's Peter. He's 2,000 years old, poor guy. Look at his fingernails. Anyway, I don't know. I was looking at the world's longest fingernails with my son yesterday. It's was in the head. You never know, you just never know. It's worth the price of admission. So they die at some point. So having faith in Jesus doesn't mean disaster's never going to occur. And having faith in Jesus doesn't mean that when it does occur that everything is gonna get better or everything is gonna get worse. So what does it mean? Well, I think Jesus' question is intended for us today too, and, and that's this. What if faith, not fear, was your default reaction to threats? What if faith, not fear, was your default reaction? So instead of getting anxious or concerned or stressed out about how everything's going to work out, what if trusting that God was God and your life was in his hands, and so whatever happened next, you'd be okay, because he would be with you. Story number two. Story number two, we find picking up at verse 26, but I'm gonna tell parts of the story and then read parts of the story. And I'll just be honest, real quick. So, the next story deals with demons, and today we don't know what to do with them. Our only understanding with demons in America comes from Hollywood or whatever they can conjure up, see what I did there, for us related to demons. And the problem is, demons don't often look like what Hollywood shows us. And so we don't know what to do with them. Not only that, but we live in a country that is extremely proof-based and scientific-based. And so we believe that demons are really for crazy people and whack jobs or hyper-religious people a lot of times. But here's what I know. My friends who serve and live in countries uh, all over the world, they've got stories to tell that I don't have explanations for. I always hate telling somebody else 's story because especially about this stuff, because if i don 't tell it right and you find out later, you might think i 'm trying to misrepresent. But when I first moved here, uh, our pastor at the time was a gentleman named Dr. John Caldwell. good guy. We went to lunch together the other day, just good guy god 's doing great things through John and, um, and John told me about a friend of his who was a Bible college professor and uh, that particular professor uh, always taught his students that demons no longer existed, that they were active 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. It's part of what's called the cessation belief, and so that therefore there was no more demonic activity until he went over to India and he was preaching, and before he got up to preach, the elders at this church that he was teaching in told him, look, we've been having some kind of weird things happen in some of our churches lately. If anything happens while you're speaking, don't worry about it. The elders will take care of it, and he said while he was preaching, In the middle of his sermon, this lady got up from like the second or third row, levitated halfway up towards the stage, yelling all kinds of things at him, and he has no idea what she said, but he could clearly see she was not on the ground, and he didn't know what to do with it. The elders literally got up like nothing was going on, laid their hands on the lady, prayed over her, and she collapsed to the ground. They then helped her up off the ground, sat her in the front row next to the elders, pointed at him and said, continue. He said, I now believe in demons. I don't know what to do with what I'm about to tell you. I only know that there's a very thin veil between the physical and the spiritual. And while many of us say that this is why they have a hard time believing the Bible, I only know this. If you're one of those people here today, don't you say that there are just times or just moments in your life where things happen and you can't quite explain it? You can't quite put your finger on it, but you know something's up? Well in this story, the disciples have now calmed the storm with Jesus, and they 're in the lake or they're on the lake, and they get to the other side. and then when they get out, there's a crazy man there, and he is filled with many demons, and they have this confrontation with the man. The man begins to yell and shout at him, now here's what we know about the man. He literally has been cast out of town, he runs around naked in the tombstones or in the graveyard, uh, for whatever the reason being and They've tried binding him with chains, they've tried all kinds of things, and they just can't keep the guy under control. There's some sort of power and something that is inside him, and nobody knows what to do with it. And when Jesus shows up, these demons yell through the man at Jesus, and they say, what are you doing here? Don't torture us. Now, why are they saying what they're saying? Well... First of all, I've read many books. I've took classes in Bible college. I even brought one of my Bible college profs out here a few years ago. He did a thing on angels and demons. And what I can say is I'm no expert in demonology, not at all, not even in the slightest. So I'm about to give you a big picture perspective of what the Bible says on demons in like 30 seconds or less. Do you think it's going to do justice to the topic? Of course not. Are you going to have questions? Of course you are. My encouragement is don't just go to Google and ask it what the Bible says about demons because Lord knows what you might get back. All right. Now, here's the biblical picture on the demonic world real quick. In the garden, when we had Adam and Eve, they walked with God. There was a perfect relationship with God. Nothing was there to divide them. And then Satan shows up and tempts Adam and Eve, and both of them disobey God and fall. And as far as we could tell, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of info on this. As far as we could tell, that is the first moment where evil enters the story. It never existed before that. And in that moment, when God comes down and he says, now, because everybody has turned against me, here's how life is going to look. He says stuff to men, he says stuff to women, and then he says something to Satan specifically. And one of the things he said is, now you will be cast down to, excuse me, to the earth. Now, a lot of people take that literally. I take that to be probably more metaphorically analogous Meaning, Satan used to be a being, a beautiful being, a powerful being who walked in and out of heaven. We even see this in the book of Job. Satan's allowed to go into the, (coughs) excuse me, heavenly courtroom or gathering room and he interacts with God. (coughs) Excuse me. But now, since he has turned from God, he has been cast down. And this is what's important for you to know. You live in enemy territory. Your entire life has been lived in a world where God says, this is his home. He is the ruler here. And yet, Jesus says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And what Jesus means by that is when you come to Jesus, the power of God living in you is greater than the power of Satan, the enemy, when you're in his territory. Therefore, you have what? Nothing to fear. Jesus casts the spirits out of this man and they go into a herd of pigs. That tells us we're in Gentile territory because Jews were not raising pigs, weren't allowed. And the pigs run down over the hill into the water. Now, some people are there to witness it, at least some people who own the pigs and some others, and it kind of freaks everybody out. Like, what just happened? Exactly. Because you're going, come on. This is why I don't believe the Bible. But I know this, How easy would it have been to to prove this story wrong? How easy would it have been to just say, look, just go grab somebody right there who can say, this is all made up. There was no pigs, they didn't do that, the pigs are right here. But instead what happens, take a look at chapter 8, verse 35. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out. He was sitting at Jesus' feet. Isn't that the crazy guy? Yep. He was dressed, that's important, and in his right mind. And they were what? <clears throat> Afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So we got into the boat and left. And I want to talk about that one more in a minute. But notice this. See, when God appears to be bigger than the thing that we're most afraid of, then we take our fear of that thing and we place it on him. And when we do that, that fear keeps us from coming into his presence because we don't know how to control God then. See, everybody was afraid of this dude. Everybody pushed him out of town trying to keep him away from them because they didn't know how to handle him. They didn't know what to do with him. But Jesus was never afraid of him. Jesus never lost control of his emotions. He knew at every moment that God was sovereign and God was in control, so he had nothing to fear. When Jesus healed him, everybody became afraid of Jesus. And instead of that fear driving them into worship, that fear did the exact opposite and made them stay away from Jesus. See, Max said in his book, feed your fears and your faith will starve. But if you feed your faith, your fears will starve. And the people are choosing to feed their fears instead of feeding their faith. And consequently, they're looking at the man more powerful than the man they're afraid of and instead of wanting to know more about him, they say, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Look at verse 38. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town, how much Jesus had done for him. Throughout the book of Luke up to this point, everybody who comes to faith in Jesus and is radically changed, whether it's sinful, immoral women or sinful, immoral men who are tax collectors, whatever it is, when they come to Jesus, they leave everything and they start what? Following him. This man's in the same camp, but Jesus doesn't let him follow him. Instead, Jesus says, go. You go back there and testify. How terrifying must that have been for him? Talk about fear. I got to go back and face my family who I've embarrassed and ashamed with my behavior and activity. I got to go back to people that I've demonized, I've literally probably hurt with my actions, and I got to look at them and say, I'm sorry, but I'm different. Do you see how this plays out in your life now? Because, see, the thin veil between us and the spiritual world, while it's there, we feel its effects all the time and we don't know it, so we don't know what to do with it. And not that I ever have a fight with my wife that's my fault. But a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were having this little spat. And like the thoughts that started coming into my mind about my wife were not honoring to her or God. And she would testify later to the same thing. And I looked at her at one point and said, this feels spiritual to me. Because our responses to this silly little thing seem so much bigger than what we're really dealing with. Over the next few days, my kids, who are perfect and amazing... They started like acting out in all those ways that they don't normally. And normally I could point to, well, they had this thing happen or this thing happened, they're tired, they're stressed, they're whatever. And I couldn't put my finger on anything going on in their world. And I literally looked at my wife and I just said, "Honey, I'm telling you, I think we need to start praying." Cuz while we can't see everything that's happening, I think we're feeling the effects of something up in our home. And see, the reason I tell you that story is I'm not trying to freak anybody out. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You got nothing to fear if you have Jesus. You have nothing to fear. You just need to replace your fear with faith and start praying and asking God to help. But notice this. See, some of you have been physically abused or emotionally abused or sexually abused. Some of you have taken part in homes where addiction has reigned. Some of you brought that addiction into the home through yourself. See, I'm convinced that all these things are demonic. They come from the evils of this other world that we can't see, playing on our fears and our desires and mixing it together and putting it in some blender and then throwing our lives into chaos. And here's the thing for you to know. See, if it's disaster or if it's demons, you need to have a savior and a Lord who is bigger than all of it. Story number three. We find ourselves uh, back in the boat. Jesus gets on the boat. And I love this. I didn't say this. I need to stress this. Jesus leaves the town of the Gerasenes, but he doesn't leave them without hope. He builds a bridge. He builds a bridge that when they're ready, they can walk across, and he sends the man to them. So just let me say this real quick. God will always build a bridge for you to walk across. So they get in the boat, and they go to the other side, and when they get there, there's massive crowds there. And there's a gentleman in the crowd, his name is Jairus, and we'll just pick up right there. Look at verse 41 of Luke chapter 8. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came, and he fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. I love that Luke puts that little note in there because the reason that Luke puts that little note in there is so you would realize just how many people we're talking about. And that sets the stage for the very next story that you're going to see. And see, this is huge because now you've got all these crowds. There's so many. They're literally suffocating Jesus. So picture like you ever go to a big football game or a big basketball game and everybody leaves at the same time. Except for, it's bigger than that. Because everybody, it's not just busy, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. So everybody's pushing in, trying to get just to him. And Jesus is about to go to this guy, Jairus's house, and help out with his 12 year old daughter who's about to die. How many of you parents in the room, one of your greatest fears is something will happen to your kid and you'll have no control? Come on, almost every parent in the room, I realize there's exceptions, we pray for you exceptions, But almost every person in the room, would you not trade your own life and health if it meant saving your child? In a heartbeat, right? I don't know how many times I've prayed that, God, take me, leave them. So Jesus is on his way to help. And something happens. And what happens is there's a woman and she's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. And she reaches out and she touched Jesus, like the corner of his cloak or whatever, the tunic that he's wearing. And she immediately becomes healed. Now, Luke tells us in the story that she's visited every doctor and nobody has answers for 12 years. What you need to read into that, she's probably broke. She's probably poor. And the reason this is a big deal is in this story, these two stories, what we see are two fascinating things, disease and death, disease and death. And in the disease portion, see, in the ancient world, if a woman were bleeding, like that kind of bleeding that you're thinking of, yes, that was considered unclean both in the Hebrew culture but also in many other ancient cultures because there were all kinds of things that that you could lead to, various other diseases and other things. So if a woman was having that particular issue going on in her life, then usually she couldn't be around other people. Other people couldn't touch it, especially in Hebrew culture. And this woman's been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. By the way, you couldn't touch a dead body either. Same reasons because we don't know exactly what caused a death, and you might get it. So, in these two stories, we're gonna see disease and death. What we're gonna see is Jesus blows up what everybody expected him to do, and he does exactly what God expects him to do, and he walks right into the mess of this world. See, if you have a perspective in your fear that God has abandoned you or doesn't care about you because you don't know what he's up to, Jesus shows us that God cares about the messiness of our lives. That's powerful. This woman couldn't go to the temple. And in that culture, if you can't go to the temple, you can't deal with your sins. So for 12 years, she's felt isolated and abandoned and overwhelmed by the things that she's done. And she has no path to deal with it before God. But then this man shows up. And maybe, just maybe there's hope. And she believes in her heart. If I could just get close enough to touch his tunic, if I could just grab the corner of it, I know I could be healed. And Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him, Peter goes, everybody. (laughs) Jesus, I mean, like, look around. He's like, no, it was different. Everybody else here is touching me because they want to be a part of something cool. This person touched me and power went out from me. Look at verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, why does she want to go unnoticed? Because she realizes she just rained on everybody else's parade, By the bleeding woman touching Jesus, she just made him unclean. This means nobody else can touch him now. He's untouchable. He's now like me. But she realizes she can't hide. So instead of running away from him any longer, she comes trembling and fell at his feet. Do you hear the fear in her? In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What would have happened that day had she never stepped up and touched Jesus? Would it have been another 12 years? Would it have been the rest of her life? I mean, this means she couldn't feel the relational intimacy of a husband or a child. Because of her constant bleeding, she would have been unclean, no one could touch her. 12 years and not a hug. Can you feel her pain? Can you feel her fear? And yet Jesus, in a moment, did away with all of that. And he said, I'm here. See, a lot of us, we stay on the outside looking at Jesus because we don't know what to do with him. We don't know how to control him. And we don't know what he's gonna do with what we have. And my encouragement to you is you've got to push past the fear. To have faith means to push past the fear and to run into the arms of Dad. Max Licato, again, in Fearless, great little book, says, fear never wrote a symphony or a poem. Fear never negotiated a peace treaty or cured a disease. Fear never pulled a family out of poverty or a country out of bigotry. Fear never saved a marriage or a business. Courage did that. Faith did that. People who refused to consult or cower to their timidities did that. But fear itself, fear herds us into a prison and slams the door. Wouldn't it be great to walk out? But back to the other story, story three, really. Because see, in the midst of this, some people run up and let Jesus know that the story has changed. Take a look at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. She will be healed. Now, we tend to, in modern day, think because we can replace a heart with another heart or a lung with another lung, or because there's this dude somewhere in the world, he's looking at doing a first head transplant. Like, because we think we can do all these things, we think people in previous years were idiots. And then we look at things like the pyramids and we go, well, maybe not in all ways. Look, the simple question here is, did people in the ancient world understand what death was? Yes, yes. Did they know how to track a heartbeat? Of course. Could they figure out if a person was breathing or not? Yes. Could they feel the lifelessness and the coldness that comes when life leaves a body? And if you've ever felt it, it's terrible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Of course they did. There was no confusion here about what was going on with this 12-year-old little girl. And the messengers come and say, Jairus, just forget it. She's dead. I'm sorry. Go home and hold your daughter and grieve. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Trust me. She will be healed. And when they get to the house, Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up to the room where the little girl is, her body is. And he makes everybody else stay out. And part of the reason he makes everybody else stay out because nobody else believes. In fact, it says they laughed at him. They mocked him because they knew she was dead. Like, what are you gonna do? You took too long, teacher. But Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, and he grabs her by the hand, and he says, get up. And she raises to life. And then he says to the parents, go ahead, make her something to eat. Why? Because I want you to see that this is not a facade. When she eats real food, you'll know she's real flesh and blood. I have given you, your daughter, back. And see, again, I get it. You're sitting there, you're like, this is why I can't believe the Bible. And all I would say is, why is that why you can't believe the Bible? Because nobody raises anybody from the dead See, you start with the assumption that nobody raises anybody from the dead. So therefore, when you hear a testimony that God raised somebody from the dead, you can't believe it because you've already started with the assumption it's not possible. But what if the assumption that maybe if God is real, it could be possible? And then simply work backwards and say, okay, did it happen? Because if it didn't happen and this story starts circulating around, they name the guy. It wouldn't be hard for those who oppose Jesus, and there are plenty because they get him killed in a few chapters. It wouldn't be hard for them to say, Jairus, synagogue leader, he's famous and well-known in this town. Go grab him. Did your daughter die? What are you talking about? But instead, when they go grab him, he goes, oh yeah, I was there. It was crazy. And now I believe. And see, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to say, well, that never happened. But if it didn't happen, why are we still telling the story today? Why did it change lives today? And the reason is, because whether it's disaster or demons or disease or death, we know this, Jesus is Lord over all of it. So does following Jesus Christ mean that you're never going to die? Of course not. Does it mean you're never going to get a disease? Of course that's not what it means. Does it mean disaster's never gonna happen? You're never gonna have a car accident or any tragedy occur in your life or family? Well, of course not. Does that mean you aren't going to be tempted and teased by demonic figures that you may not be able to see? No, it doesn't mean that. Then what does it mean? Again, I think Max did a great job. See, it's not the absence of storms that set us apart as believers. It's whom we discover in the storm, an unstirred Christ. And what that simply means is this. When you go through death and disease and disaster and demons, God is with you. And in Jesus Christ there is hope that whatever you're facing today is not the end of your story. God listens. and God cares. This is why Jesus grabbed the disciples just before he was crucified, brutalized. And he says to them in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, but I don't give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And I love that little phrase, I don't give as the world gives. Why is that powerful? See, when the world gives, apart from faith in God, we give with impure motive. I'll give to you because you earned it. You worked hard, and so I gave it to you. Or I'll give to you because maybe I want something in return, whether that's your favor or a bigger, better present down the road or whatever it is. But see, Jesus says, when I give, I don't give like the world gives. I don't give because you earned it. I give because I love you. I don't give because you've done something that proves, oh, they're worth it, or because you have any value to bring to me apart from you. See, when Jesus gets you, he gets everything he was looking for anyway. So what does he do? He gives you peace. But then he says, don't let, don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's only possible through Jesus Christ. And listen, um, If you're sitting here today or maybe you're watching at home online, I hope this message hits you and messes with you in ways you didn't anticipate. But I hope what it does more than anything is it grows your faith in who God is and what he's capable of. What might be different in your world if instead of trying to control everything on your own, instead you were to turn to him and find everything you need? Because that's what he's offering. What I want to do is I want to pray over you today. But look, I don't know where this message lands. So we very intentionally ended this message so that after I pray, we could just say, look, if you need prayer, if you've got stuff going on in your life and in your world, and you don't want to go through it alone, believer or unbeliever, you could be visiting with us for the first time, I have no idea what I just talked about but you got junk going on in your life and you don't want to do it alone, we want to pray with you. We want to help you. So what I'm going to do is pray and then I'll just invite you to come down here and, and talk to us. We'll have some people down here wearing their Connect shirts and just say, I need somebody to pray with me. But let me start that prayer right now. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you I know that we are in a war against spiritual forces that we can't see, and God, there are some in this room who are feeling the effects of that war as the spiritual world is trying to pull their family apart. God, there are some watching online or here in this room right now, and they've recently been diagnosed with something, and they cry out constantly asking you to get answers or relief or money for the medicine or whatever it is, and there doesn't seem to be an answer, I know there are some God in this room. Disaster, tragedy has occurred. Just yesterday, I got an email from a a young lady whose sister died. And again, Lord, death. Father, when these things happen, would you please forgive us? Because they make us question you. They make us question our faith. But God, I thank you that you are bigger than our questions. I thank you that over and over and over and over again, you prove yourself faithful to us. God, I thank you for the examples of these stories to show us just how good you are. But God, I'm praying right now, would you help us to turn our fear into faith? God, would you help us to, to, uh, to stop looking at all the things that are going wrong, Father, and instead to lift our eyes above our problems, lift it up to the skies and to you, and to say, God, help, help. And God, in the midst of our crying out, whether you bring immediate relief or no relief to our situation, would you just simply give us your peace? Because we know, God, that you give it to us as a gift that doesn't make any sense. It's a peace that passes all understanding because in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, you come and you love us and you help us. God, we cry out to you as a people who need that. So Father, thank you for faith thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name, all God's people prayed and said, amen. We're just gonna ask for you to leave kind of quietly today as you go. And if today you need some prayer, just kind of come on down this direction and we just wanna pray with you. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next week.